Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to another CHP episode. Laszlo Montgomery here, bringing you part two in this long-requested series that will cover the main events and history of the warlord era in China. The one we remember most that lasted from 1916 to 1928 and into the Nanjing Decade. Patreon.com, China History Podcast. You'll find me in there. The link is in the show notes. Please show your support for the CHP. In the previous episode, we saw how these local Yongying militias, often referred to as braves, in Hunan and Anhui, led by Zhang Guofan and Li Hongzhang, came to the aid of the Qing government and delivered to Hong Xiuquan and his Taiping rebels the final knockout punches that ultimately led to the conclusion of that long and bloody civil war. And after the venerable Zhang Guofan passed in 1872, it was his protege, Li Hongzhang, who would lead the Qing dynasty's military modernization efforts, for better or for worse. And then we left off with the heir to all the military and diplomatic endeavors and achievements started by Li Hongzhang, and this was Yuan Shikai. I mentioned that some historians call Yuan the first warlord. In a way, he was. I mean, you could judge for yourselves. I mentioned last episode that he was one of Li Hongzhang's people. He got his start in Korea and served there admirably for a decade. At first, he made himself useful to the Qing royal court, helping Empress Dowager Cixi put an end to the 1898 Hundred Days reforms of her nephew, the Guangxu Emperor. Then he lined up against her during the Boxer Rebellion, and finally, upon Cixi's death in 1908, the Qing royals sent Yuan Shikai packing, fearful of his growing power and influence. Now, in between the time of his sacking, up to the time of the October 1911 Wuchang Uprising on Double Ten Day, Yuan Shikai was back in his home province of Henan, planning his next move. When the very survival of the dynasty was at stake, the Qing royals went back to Yuan, cap in hand, and inquired if he'd be willing to come to their defense. His two main protégés, who we'll hear about next episode, Duan Qi Rei and Feng Guozhang, they were his eyes and ears during this time and kept him informed about all the events he was missing out on. And that's where we can pick up the story today and run with it. Yuan Shikai was... 52 years old at the time of the Wuchang Uprising, younger than me, in his role as the most powerful person in China, thanks to his control of the Beiyang Army and the clique of generals and officers in that organization, he had a very strong negotiating position. The Qing government, led by Empress Dowager Longyu, former empress consort to the Guangxu Emperor, showered Yuan Shikai with attractive offers. Keeping Yuan on their side at this life-or-death moment of the Qing dynasty was never more critical. When they were laying their limited number of cards on the table, Yuan's army gave Sun Yat-sen and his followers a little pressure by taking back the cities of Hanyang and Hankou, two of the three cities that make up Wuhan. Wuchang was still in the hands of the revolutionaries. With Yuan taking this action, Sun didn't know for sure which side... Yuan Shikai stood on. So the Empress Dowager Longyu and her court knew their fate rested in Yuan's hands. 
The Southern revolutionary leaders, whose main objective was the downfall of the Qing, had no shortage of volunteers and supporters willing to fight for them. But the armies they cobbled together were weak, and the soldiers had little or no training, and besides all that, there weren't even enough rifles and bullets to go around. And because of the nature of their organization, well, none of the foreign powers were willing to risk extending loans to these southern-based revolutionaries. In late December 1911, a couple months after the Wuchang uprising, Sun Yat-sen and his followers took stock of their situation and knew, for the sake of national unity, they had to start a dialogue with Yuan Shikai. Sun had said, quote, It is true that Yuan Shikai is not trustworthy, yet we can use him to overthrow the 260-year Manchu tyrannical rule. It would be better to do this than to launch a war by sacrificing over a hundred thousand troops to achieve the same goal, end quote. In other words, better to cut a deal than risk an all-out civil war with a very well-armed Yuan Shikai and his Beiyang clique. The one tasked by Sun Yat-sen to represent their interests was Li Yuanhong. You'll hear his name plenty in the episodes to come. He had already begun discussions with Yuan Shikai in November 1911. Progress had been made, but no solution was agreed to by the two sides. On December 18, 1911, a National Assembly in Nanjing was held to vote on the matter of president. And then two days later, on December 20th, representatives from 17 provinces voted and chose Sun Yat-sen as the first president of the republic. And on New Year's Day, 1912, Sun Yat-sen was sworn in. And just as Mao Zedong would do a little over 38 years later, Sun Yat-sen declared the founding of the Republic of China. But Sun and his Tongmenghui, or United League, supporters knew they were too weak to stand up to Yuan, and being in a position to challenge Yuan and his Beiyang army was all wishful thinking. They had to give Yuan Shikai a little more face than he was getting. The fate of the Manchu royals up in Beijing was still in limbo. They were desperately trying to stay in the game, but their fate rested entirely in Yuan Shikai's hands. The child emperor and his regent, the empress dowager Long Yu, had not yet abdicated. Sun Yat-sen proposed to Yuan, if you force this abdication, I'll pass the provisional presidency of the republic on to you. Yuan Shikai's sentiments leaned more in the direction of a constitutional monarchy. But given China's millennia-old historical tradition of emperors, he was not alone in thinking this was a more appropriate form of government. Yuan truly believed, and I guess you could say rightly so, that a republic wasn't suitable for China, and all it would do was lead to civil war and continued unrest. But beyond Yuan's core supporters, there wasn't much excitement about keeping the emperor. Yuan could have gone against the tide of history and tried to preserve the great Qing dynasty, but rather than doing that, he cut a better deal with the revolutionary leaders in the South. And with a full-court press of political pressure led by Yuan's right-hand man, Duan Shi Rei, on February 12, 1912, the last emperor, Pu Yi, abdicated. And a few days later, Yuan Shikai, as promised by Sun Yat-sen and his followers, 
was elected the provisional president down in Nanjing. This was the high point of the revolution. In the days and weeks that followed, the mood in both Nanjing, where the revolutionaries were based, and up in Beijing, home turf of the Beiyang army, was in a word, ebullient. No one at that time knew anything about World War I or Japanese aggression in China, the Second Sino-Japanese War, World War II, and the rise of the communists. All these things that defined early 20th century Chinese history. That was all beyond the horizon. Sun had expected that Yuan would take up his new leadership position in Nanjing, where their government was based. But Yuan didn't take them up on that offer and said he'll run things from the north. For now, Yuan Shikai was the man of the hour, and from more than one source, he was lionized as China's George Washington, the father of the country. Such heady times in early 1912. So much sweet-talking went on between Yen Shikai and Sun Yat-sen and their followers. But deep inside, Sun knew a strong man such as Yuan was the best bad choice available, and for the time being, they had to make it work. After all, the revolutionaries were happy. They wanted the end of the Qing dynasty, and they got it. By the way, as part of the plan to push them over the edge and force an abdication... Yuan offered a very sweet deal to the royal family that allowed them to remain in the Forbidden City, receive a generous $4 million annual stipend, and no one was allowed to molest or injure them. Now, considering what was usually the fate for overthrown monarchs, it wasn't a bad ending for them. Better than what the Romanovs got. The big winner by far was the Beiyang clique, led by its leader, Yuan Shikai. He was now head of the republic. Everyone on all sides was outwardly getting along, and there was this feeling in the air that this Republic of China thing might work out after all. But as we'll find out, this turned out to be one of the biggest cases of Tongchuang Yi Meng in modern Chinese history. They all shared the same bed, but both sides had completely different dreams. Almost from the outset, there was trouble brewing. Yuan Shikai was a military man, and he knew very little about this new government system. As president, he thought he was the main man. But under the current parliamentary system, the real power at the top was vested in the premier, who at this time was Tang Shaoyi. You may recall, maybe not. He was the mentor to Wellington Ku and gave him his first big break and allowed him to marry his daughter. Wellington Ku, we looked at him in CHP episodes 214 and 15. Though Tang Shaoyi was close to Yuan, he quickly saw that Yuan didn't like being the number two guy. And this is where everything started to go downhill. Within a couple months, Tang Shaoyi threw in the towel and resigned as the first premier of the ROC. Yuan Shikai was like a bull in a china shop. He did some good things. I mean, he did attempt some kind of political reconciliation, and hoped to unify China. He promoted education and many other reforms. But all the good Yuan Shikai tried to promote all took a backseat to his top priority of consolidating his power. Over the next few years, many of the big names of the warlord era will start to emerge as Yuan starts gaming the political system and 
slotting them in various government positions. Financially, Yuan Shikai was in dire straits. The revenue coming into the country, after most of it was siphoned off to the foreign powers to pay for these loans and indemnities, was minuscule at best. China was getting by on foreign loans. The future was looking bleak in the honeymoon period between the coalition in the south, led by Sun Yat-sen and Yuan in the north, was a short one, and this was looking more and more like a shotgun wedding. And after the KMT, founded by Song Jiao-ren in August 1912 by joining together various competing factions, after they won big in the elections held at the end of 1912, early 1913, the politically astute knew trouble was brewing. Song Jiao-ren had more than a few enemies. Liang Qichao and Sun Yat-sen were certainly his rivals. Song represented a great hope for the KMT, and perhaps for the future of the nation. He was quite a charismatic guy, not a bad speaker. After the heady victory of his party in the elections, Song Jiao-ren railed particularly hard against Yuan Shikai and how he was running roughshod over the new Republic of China government systems. Song knew the freshly minted KMT, even though they had a majority in the lower house of the National Assembly, was toothless before Yuan and his Beiyang clique. Lacking a more attractive option, Song at first opted to hold his nose and began to work with Yuan. But Yuan knew Song Jiaoren, this ambitious young firebrand of a revolutionary, so politically astute, so filled with energy and patriotism, and so committed to democratic principles, was politically nothing but a threat to him. And for this reason, although it was never proven beyond the shadow of a doubt, Yuan Shikai greenlighted the assassination of Song Jiaoren. March 20th, 1913. Definitely a date that will live on in Chinese historical infamy. At 10.40 p.m. on a train platform in Shanghai. One shot from behind was all it took. Song Jiaoren died two days later. Just before he took his final breath, Song had written a letter to Yuan Shikai saying, quote, I die with deep regret. I humbly hope that Your Excellency will champion honesty, propagate justice, and promote democracy. End quote. The suspects in the assassination all died mysteriously or disappeared. Plenty of people benefited from Song Jiaoren's death, but all the leads pointed to Yuan Shikai. No one ever found the smoking gun that tied Yuan to Song's death, but he had the most to gain with Song Jiaoren out of the way. The great Gotti Epstein, in his December 2012 piece for The Economist, a PDF of which I keep on my hard drive just for moments like these, called Yuan, quote, the cartoon villain of this tale, with bushy mustache, round open face, and slightly overfed build of an indulged monarch, end quote. It was clear by now that there were two things Yuan Shikai did not want. A premier who could challenge him in the government, and a constitution that would tie his hands and limit his powers. He was no George Washington. Well, so much for that. It was barely more than a year between the time of five-year-old Emperor Puyi's abdication and Song Jiaoran's assassination. 
All that heady talk and high hopes for Yuan Shikai to become this leader he was never meant to be. All that went out the window. On April 26, 1913, Yuan inked a foreign syndicated loan of 25 million pounds sterling. Then he went right over the head of the parliament and signed it himself. And where do you think that 25 million quid ended up? It all went to bolstering the Bayon clique enterprise, directly and indirectly. The KMT, the Nationalist Party, the one formed by Song Jiaoren, revolted against Yuan and his Beiyang clique, and from July to September 1913, civil war broke out. Many of the provinces declared independence from the Beiyang government. Anhui, Jiangxi, Guangdong, Hunan. And this event was called the Second Revolution, the Erzi Geming. It was the revolutionaries of the South led by Sun Yat-sen and their military allies, who also had an axe to grind with Yuan Shikai, joining forces in an attempt to defeat the Beiyang clique. They may have performed poorly against Japan in the First Sino-Japanese War, but against these armies to the south, the Beiyang army swatted these revolutionary forces down in no time at all. And now, everything was out in the open. All this animosity that existed on both sides. What a difference a year can make. Sun Yat-sen, knowing correctly that Yuan Shikai wasn't going to take kindly to this uprising, fled the country in August and set himself up in exile in Japan, planning his next move. On November 4th, 1913, someone we'll be hearing more about in Part 3, future warlord Zhang Xun, after he took back Nanjing to effectively end the Second Revolution, he later got the okay from the top levels of the Beiyang organization to pillage and plunder the city. And in that month, Yuan Shikai called for the KMT to be dissolved. So, January 1914 was a mini Great Leap Forward as far as the stage getting set for the warlord era. Yuan shuttered the National Assembly, no dictators like having those around, and to place a fig leaf over the reality of his new strongman rule. Yuan put a 65-man Congress, or committee, or whatever you want to call it, in place that looked and acted like a representative body, except that everyone represented Yuan Shikai. On May 1st, 1914, Yuan annulled the 1912 Provisional Constitution. And his new version of the Constitution gave him a little more elbow room as far as dictatorial powers went. Yeah, pretty much everything that had been put in place to get democracy up and running in China was deconstructed. And Yuan changed the term of president to 10 years with no term limits. If Yuan Shikai wanted to become president for life, it was all up to him. In each and every province... Yuan put in place these dudus, who were military governors in charge of civil administration. And each of these military governors were all beholden to Yuan Shikai. And by nurturing this system of putting all his hand-selected military officers in place in every province, this turned out to be one more brick in the wall as far as the establishment of warlordism in China. And everyone who had argued since the time of the Guangxu Emperor that a republican form of government would never be able to get off the ground in China 
were proven right. Yuan had effectively turned himself into an emperor, which sort of got him thinking. Well, 1915, what a year that was in China. January 18th, the Japanese threw the 21 demands in China's face. We discussed that more than a few times in the past. What Yuan Shikai ended up signing on May 9th of that year had the worst of Japan's gimmies excised from the 21 Demands Agreement, but it was still pretty bad. After the ink was dry, Yuan Shikai's PR team had a lot of explaining to do. Right here, with the signing of Japan's 21 Demands, is where anti-Yuan Shikai sentiment starts to catch fire nationally. And not only with Yuan, with this act, forcing the 21 demands on China, even in its diluted final form, with this act, Japan took that first major step that would cause a sea change in anti-Japanese sentiments in China. And some could argue that sentiment is still smoldering today, 104 years later. And in the previous year, on June 28, 1914, Archduke Franz Ferdinand and his missus gunned down in Sarajevo. We all know what happens in the wake of that. So now, amidst the wreckage of the failed Republic of China, the 21 demands, and Yuan Shikai's power plays, now we have World War I playing in the background. A terrible distraction for the European powers in China. A blessing for the Japanese, though. All this history, we've discussed a few times before. Let's talk about the stuff that laid the groundwork for the warlord era. There's really two more chapters in this epic saga to go before the horses rush out of the starting gate and it's every warlord for himself. The first, of course, is Yuan Shikai's ill-advised attempt at restoring the monarchy with himself as emperor. Many credit, or give too much credit, to the American Frank Goodnow for being the one who put this bug in Yuan's ear about, you know, declaring himself emperor. Goodnow had come to China with the backing of the Carnegie Endowment and a recommendation from the former president of Harvard, and he was sent to Beijing to be an advisor to Yuan Shikai for the drafting of that new constitution, the one that opened the door to no term limits for the president, i.e. Yuan Shikai. But as far as his place in history, what we remember Frank Goodnow for was his assertion that democracy had no place in China. The country still had a long way to go. Goodnow had arrived in Beijing only six weeks after Song Jiaoren's assassination and only saw the aftermath, which involved a lot of protests and riots. So based on this experience, Goodnow said China was more suited to monarchy. And though he didn't whisper into Yuan's ear that he should really consider making himself emperor of China, it was a very nice and respectable justification, and Yuan surely took it to heart. And so we got one step closer to the warlord era when Yuan Shikai, end of 1915, declared his intention to form a new dynasty and proclaim himself emperor of China. That decision, to put it mildly, was a mistake. All of the authoritarian measures Yuan had instituted, changing the constitution, outlawing the KMT, sidelining political rivals, this had already caused a deep division in the country. And now this. Well, Yuan Shikai, or the 
Hongxian Emperor, as he was called, after the accession rites were held on New Year's Day, 1916. He couldn't pass out peerages fast enough to all his supporters and hangers-on, all the military leaders and future warlords who we'll discuss in the coming episodes were made princes, dukes, marquises, counts, viscounts, and barons. The whole thing could be summarized in a single word, shambolic. Yuan didn't have long to live, but he lived long enough to regret this decision. Even his subordinates at the top rungs of the military thought Yuan went a bridge too far with this whole emperor thing. The most immediate upshot of this instant debacle for Yuan was the National Protection War, the Hu Guozhanzheng. It all started way down in the southwest, in Yunnan province. Three generals there who ran the province, Tang Yao, Tsai E, and Li Liajun, on Christmas Day, 1915, all declared independence from Yuan's government and went on the offensive. In the meantime, the two adjacent provinces to Yunnan, namely Guizhou and Guangxi, same thing. They broke free and rose up against Yuan. And then, as soon as the provinces of Guangdong, Shandong, Hunan, Shanxi, Jiangxi, and Jiangsu threw their lot in with the National Protection Army, as it was called, Yuan Shikai knew. He miscalculated. On March 22, 1916, on what would have been Song Jiaoren's 34th birthday, Yuan Shikai abdicated and called the whole thing off. Now, this smart move diffused matters with respect to the National Protection War. Even some of Yuan's own Beiyang generals had exhibited much diminished enthusiasm in their encounters with National Protection Army forces. After all, it wasn't clear what was in it for them as far as their personal power base with Yuan ruling as an emperor rather than as an old-fashioned military dictator. But the southern military strongmen... They had had enough of this whole failed experiment and pretending to cooperate with Yuan Shikai and his Beiyang clique. From here on out, they turned their backs on any calls for national unity. This really complicates the telling of our story. This northern and southern split for the rest of the series. There were always multiple narratives happening, and all their individual histories all played out at the same time, and were intertwined here and there. What a video game this would make, with an epic cast of potential characters. The warlords of North China, Eastern China, Southwest China, and in the Northwest. Then, on the 6th of June, 1916, Yuan Shikai died. Suddenly, just like that. And that system he had put in place and nurtured with all these doo-doos, these Military governors all in place. There was no longer one ring to rule them all, to use a well-worn metaphor. And so we arrive at what most history books call the actual starting point of the warlord era. With the death of Yuan Shikai, it all began here with Yuan's death, where you know, even though his prestige was diminished by the whole emperor fiasco, the signing of the 21 demands, the civil war that was ramping up. He didn't have too much to show for as far as accomplishments over the past few years. Regardless, he held everything together 
using the traditional system of personal relationships with military governors he placed throughout the provinces in China within his political and military reach. It worked in the Zhou dynasty, still worked 3,000 years later. Some of those guys out in the provinces with their weapons and soldiers, they had ambition too. And with Yuan gone, a bunch of them are going to test the limits of their greed and authority over their various territories of China. And next episode, we'll pick up right there. Exit Yuan Shikai and enter Duan Qi Rei, Feng Guozhang, and a host of others. Again, thanks to all you Patreon subscribers. I hope you're enjoying those stories. Lots more to come. Patreon.com slash China History Podcast, if you want to join in the fun. For less than the price of half a shawarma, help support the CHP. Don't be shy. If you prefer PayPal as your donation platform of choice, I'll have a link to that in the show notes and at the website at teacup.media. That's it for now. My eternal thanks if you lasted this far. This is Laszlo Montgomery signing off from Los Angeles, California, IA, Warlord Era Part 3, coming next time. You could put that in the bank, start earning interest on that today. So please do join me then, same bat time, same bat channel, for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.